Well, thank you, Ed and, and John. Thank you for leading us in worship and for leading us in prayer in such a beautiful and powerful way. Isn't it wonderful to be here? What a privilege. The amazing privilege we have to serve and to love our God in this way. Please open your scriptures to Genesis chapter 37. As I endeavor to lead us through God's word, as you open there, just please bow and pray with me, Lord God. I, I always come to this little two-by-two area with fear and trepidation. Help me to handle your word correctly. Spirit, give the words that I say life, because they are just words without you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It's becoming a thing of the past, if you can believe it, but map legends are becoming unknown to a generation that is following. Legends help us to decipher maps. The lines with lines through it might look like railroads. Tell us that it's railroads. Dotted lines, underground cables, thick black lines, roads, thick dotted lines, highways. There are symbols that help you identify cities and towers, lakes and streams, without a legend, you might not be able to make heads or tails of a map. You can become confused, frustrated, and if you're not using the legend, you can even become lost. But once you look at the legend, you get it. You understand it. The symbols, once explained, make sense. You can find your way around in rough and confusing terrain if you use the legend. And the Old Testament can be some rough and pretty confusing terrain. We can read a passage and sometimes get totally lost in that passage unless we have a legend. Jesus gave us that legend When he was talking to the Pharisees one day in John 5, he looked at them and he said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you will possess eternal life. These scriptures testify about me. What Jesus was doing is giving them and us a legend for the Old Testament. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to use that legend today to look at chapter 37. Look with me at verse 1. God's word says, Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the son with the sons of Billa and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not even speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said, are you, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you not your bro- are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And he said to him, Now go and see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please. Where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him coming from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into some one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he may rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So then Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders came by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. 
When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors that bought from his father and said, This is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured Joseph, without, is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up and comforted him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go, go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The eminent theologian Graham Goldsworthy in his book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Literature, wrote this. All scriptures are about Jesus Christ, even where there is no explicit prediction. That is, there is a fullness of implication in all the scriptures that points to Christ. The meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the legend for the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 37 is absolutely saturated with the gospel. As I read through that chapter, I hope you were picking up on it as I was reading. And right from the start, we see the theme of a favored son, don't we? Right out of the gates, a favored son. Now, with chapter 37, we're starting into the 10th and final section of Genesis. You notice there in verse 1, it said the generations of. There have been nine others. This section that talks about Joseph will take us all the way to the end of our study together. It is by far the longest, and it concerns Jacob's 11th born son, Joseph. And his story will just take up the rest of Genesis. Right here, we're introduced to him. He's 17 years old. And the first thing we notice about him, the first thing that is, is told to us about him, pretty, pretty obviously, is that Joseph is the favored son, right? He is the favorite. He is the darling of the family. If you look at verses 2 through 4, twice you'll see there in that text that it pulls out there and it calls out that Joseph was uh, Jacob's favorite son and that the brothers absolutely knew this. This was not a secret in this family. This is the generational sin of Abraham's family, isn't it? If you've been here while we've been going through Genesis, you have seen this again and again and again, haven't we? We saw it with Abraham, who loved Isaac most, right? To the detriment of Ishmael. We saw Isaac carrying on this generational sin by, by loving Esau more, and Rachel loving, loving Jacob more and the destruction that it caused in that family. And here we see Jacob carrying on this dysfunction, not only loving Rachel more than Leah, his wives, 
but loving Joseph more than all other brothers, all other sons. And we see the evidence of this favoritism right in the beginning with Jacob making him this, this ornate robe. It's translated coat of many colors, or it can also be translated long-sleeved robe. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over what does that mean? But I think we can take three steps back and we can say for sure Jacob was showing everybody that he favored Joseph. This is the son. This is the apple of my eye right here. And I want you all to know it. Now, the chapter is not about favoritism. That's not the the main thrust of this chapter. We can certainly see the fruit of favoritism here. We see it in Abraham's family all along. On the one hand, it puffs up, doesn't it? We see that throughout the generations and here with Joseph. It makes him proud. It makes, gives him hubris, feeds his hubris. And on the other hand, it embitters and angers, doesn't it? You see that here with the brothers. You see that, saw that with Ishmael. You saw that with Esau. To the point where the brothers here, it says in verse 4, could not even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't say one kind word to him. In verse 11, it says that they were jealous of him. In verse 5, it says they hated him. In fact, it says it twice there. And in verse 18, we see this hate coming to, to full flower where they conspired to kill him. That is the fruit of favoritism right there. Whether it be in a family, in a church, on a job, that's the fruit of favoritism. It causes bitterness and envy and rivalry and hatred. So this is the theme that has been running through Abraham's family. And the role of all favorite and firstborns in Scripture is to prepare us for the ultimate favored and firstborn son in Scripture, and that is Jesus Christ. That's how this legend helps us to read the Old Testament. That's how this legend helps us to understand this passage, that Joseph's favoritism, even though sinful, is actually helping us to see Christ in the coming one. John 3.16 tells us that God sent not just his favored son, but his one and only son, his, his only begotten son, the second person of the Godhead. And God the Father showed his love for him. If you remember in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus goes down into the Jordan to be baptized and he comes back up and the, a dove, the Holy Spirit comes down on him and we, everyone hears the voice from heaven. Everyone hears this voice. And what does the voice say? He wants everyone to know that this is my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. He wants the world to know that. So the story is of a favored son who is given lordship over his family. A favored son who is given lordship over his family. That's the second gospel theme here, and that's what we see in, in verses 5 through 11. In verses 5 through 11, we see the lordship. This is 
meted out in the dreams. First of all, you see he tells them of the dream of the sheaves where they're binding sheaves in the field and he binds his sheaf, Joseph does, and the brothers bind theirs and his sheaf stands up and their sheaves come and bow down to his and he tells it to his brothers. The second dream that he's given is he's apparently there and the moon and the stars are, the moon and the sun are there and the stars are there and they bow down to him. Now here we get a glimpse into the effects of favoritism on Joseph. I don't read Joseph personally as a very positive character right here. I think what we're seeing here is his hubris. Imagine telling your parents this. Imagine telling your brother, so by the way, I'm great and you're going to bow down to me. Try doing that in your family today. So you're seeing the, the, the fruit of this favoritism. Yet we know, if you know Joseph's story, you know that both of these dreams foreshadow what will come in the, in the chapters ahead of us, don't you? After Joseph is sold into slavery down in Egypt, he rises by God's grace to the second in command to Pharaoh. And when a famine grips the land, his family comes down and indeed bows down to him. So it's foreshadowing something that is actually true. And these dreams foreshadow Joseph's, not only Joseph's preeminence and lordship, but using the gospel legend, it foreshadows Jesus' lordship and preeminence. You know this text as well as I do in Philippians 2, where it talks about, first of all, his humility and then his exaltation. Starting in verse 6, who Christ, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is Jesus' humility. But then we have his exaltation. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because of what Jesus did for you and me, his humility... God exalted him above all creation, gave him preeminence, gave him lordship over everything. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords right now. Now, I might step on some toes here, but I think that deep down, we have the same reaction that Joseph's brothers did to him, to Jesus' lordship over us. We like to sing about it. We sang about his lordship today. We like to talk about it. We like to read about it. We, I just read Philippians 2 to you. But when the word confronts us in an area that we don't like, we act like Joseph's brothers. 
We don't like it. We act a lot like a person named Jean Bernadot. Jean Bernadot was born in 1763, the son of a French government worker. As a young man, he joined the army and eventually became one of Napoleon's first marshals. But in an odd twist of history, Bernadot found favor in the eyes of the king of Sweden because of how he treated the Swedish POWs. When Sweden's crown prince suddenly died in 1810, Sweden astonishingly offered to put Bernadot next in line for the throne. Renamed King Charles John, he was a popular but very harsh monarch who reigned until his death in 1844 at the age of 81. Now, interestingly and ironically, during his embalming process, they discovered a secret. In his youth, during the French Revolution, when the king was still simply Jean Bernadot, he had acquired a tattoo. On his chest was a picture of a red cap, a symbol of liberation, with the French words printed under it, Mort au Roy, which translated means death to all kings. Bernadotte, like us, loved to embrace authority until, resisted authority until he had authority. Mort O'Roy is the tattoo that we all are born with on our hearts. Think about it. That's the common thread in all ages. Your child growing up, what are some of their first words? We love to say, oh, he said daddy first, he said mommy first. One of the first words is what? No. It's the reason teens complain about their parents all the time, the authority. It's the reason workers complain about their bosses. It's the reason people in a country complain about their government. It's the reason people in the church complain about the elders. Part of the effects of the fall is that we have Mort O'Roy tattooed on our heart. And so when we hear Jesus say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, like he does at the end of Matthew, go into all the nations, we go, uh, I might be embarrassed. I don't know how to say it. I might look stupid. I might get fired. When we read in scripture that tells us that you are not your own, you are bought with a price. That's the word of God. Do you believe that? And if you do believe that, do you believe the implications of that in your life? That Jesus is not just your savior, but he's also your Lord, your master. And by the way, the Greek word there, bond servant, is actually, doulos, is actually the word slave. We are called slaves of Christ. And we chafe against that. 
And it shows up differently. If you're here today and, and, and you can see yourself not a Christian, I, I, I love that you're here. I, I, I love that you're sitting here and listening to this. And I encourage you, come back as much as you want. But I want to I be presumptuous and say that if you're sitting here and you're not a believer, I, I might know some of the dialogue that goes on in your heart in regards to Christianity. You think that Christianity is just a, a bunch of rules that is constraining. And why on earth would anyone want to actually put your, themselves in there? That religion takes, sucks all the fun out of life. Or in questions like, why would I even want to put myself under any authority? Whether it be Christ's authority or the church's authority. Or maybe you're, you're, the dialogue that goes on in your heart is, what right does anyone have to tell me what to do? Or in expressions like, I'm, I'm the master of my own life. Or freedom is being yourself without having to ask permission. Now, if you're a believer, some of the dialogue that goes along in your heart might be a little different. But the tattoo is still there. We bristle against authority when the word confronts us on something that is near and dear to us. When it shows us sin that we simply do not want to let go of. When the word asks us to give up something that we don't want to give up. When it asks us to do something that we don't want to do. When a brother or sister or elder confronts you in as much love and grace and truth as they can about your sin, what's your heart reaction? Or how about when Christ doesn't give you what you think you deserve? You see, Jesus is not just your Savior. He's your Lord also. We have a similar reaction as Joseph's brothers did. Mort O'Roy. Yet Jesus still came, even though that's how we treat him. Jesus still came to seek and to save And that's the third gospel theme that we see here. Joseph went seeking his brothers in verses 12 through 17. He went seeking his brothers. So there's a story of a favored son who is given lordship over his family who goes seeking his brothers. The brothers take their flocks and go north back to Shechem. Probably not a good place to go, if you know the story. And Joseph's father sends Jacob to look for them. He travels north to Shechem and doesn't find them there. Bumps into a man and the man says, I think I saw them. They're up, they're up further north in Dothan. And verse 17 tells us, Joseph went after his brothers and found them there. We're never told exactly why Jacob sent Joseph to look for his brothers. No reason is given for the search, but we're actually given a really good reason 
in the gospel, aren't we? The gospel tells us that Jesus came seeking because we're lost. We're spiritually lost. Jesus came to earth because we're lost. Getting lost geographically is usually only temporary and has little consequences. But the Bible speaks of being spiritually lost. It has terrible consequences and is very serious. According to the Bible, being spiritually lost means being without God for your guide. So you're left to your own devices, your own wisdom. You're left to figuring things out for yourself. Have you ever gotten to a place where your own decisions have just made a train wreck of your life? And so the consequences of living a spiritually lost life are serious and they're not temporary. Scripture talks about lostness in eternal means. Eternal separation from God. Eternal torment and pain. Eternal aloneness. On July 4th, 1854, Charlie Peace, a well-known criminal in London, was hung. When Charlie Peace was marched to the gallows, a priest read these words from the Anglican prayer book. Quote, Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. When Charlie heard those words, he stopped. He turned to the priest and shouted in his face, Do you believe that? The priest was taken back, stammered for a moment, then looked back at Charlie and said, Yes, yeah, I do. Charlie said, Well, I don't. But if I did, he said, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass, if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. In Luke 10, he tells those there that he came to seek the save and the lost. And at the end of his life, if you know the gospel story, at the end of his life, after being tortured and spit upon, he was asked to carry his cross, his own death implement, up the hill to Golgotha. And if you know the story, you know that he collapsed on the way. And Simon of Serene had to carry the cross the rest of the way. He literally was on his hands and knees, willing to bear your and my punishment. Like Charlie Peace, many do not like to hear that they're spiritually lost. I don't know how it is with you today. Many people don't like to hear that you need saving. That you need a savior and it's not you. And the reaction to that can be hate and rejection. 
And that's our fourth gospel theme. They hated and rejected Joseph. That's verses 18 through 34. So the story is of a favored son who's given lordship over his family, who goes seeking his brothers, and his brothers hate and reject him. Verse 18 tells us that when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they conspired to kill him. The brothers hated Joseph's favored prominence and his place in the family so much that they wanted to actually kill him. And Reuben, the eldest brother, interceded and they stripped him of his robe and they threw him in a pit, eventually sold him to some traders going to Egypt. They couldn't bring themselves to tell the father what they had just done and so ironically... They deceive the deceiver. They dip his robe in blood and tell Jacob that Joseph was eaten by a wild animal. They hated and, reje- and rejected their own brother. It doesn't take a pastor to, for you to see the gospel there, do you? In John 1... We read, he was in the world, this is Christ, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to which those which was his own, and they did not receive him. Jesus came seeking the saving, the lost, spiritually, you and me, the collective human race, if you will, and we hated him for it. Think about that. I'm always struck by the line that we sing in the Stuart Townsend uh, song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Do you know that song? There's a line that, quite frankly, I always choke up on. We sing, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice calling out, among the scoffers. Kind of, kind of encapsulates it, doesn't it? He came to live a life I could never live. He put himself under the law as much as we are under the law. And he lived it out perfectly. We stumble and fall in, in word, thought, and deed every single day. And he lived it perfectly. And he bore the punishment that, that I deserved for my sin. He, he willingly went to the cross, literally crawling on his hands and knees to pay for my sin with his death. And when our hearts hear that, isn't it interesting? Many hate and reject him. Isn't that interesting? Do you find that odd? It always reminds me that without the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to the gospel, I would be saying the same things the brothers did. I would be saying the same things those at the cross did. I would be hating Jesus Christ like the world hates him. Without the incredible grace of God, I would be standing at the foot of the cross mocking Christ. 
Yet, before we get too morose here, we have to understand one thing, and this is amazing. It was God's plan all along. You realize that? It's God's plan all along. Look at verse 36 with me. Turn there. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph ends up where? In Egypt. Are the dots connecting for you? They should be. That's exactly where God wanted him. That's exactly where God wanted his people. Back in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, when God is giving the covenant to Abram for the first time, he says this to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. This is exactly where God wanted him. This is plan all along. Yeah, it looked messy. Full of sin. But God used that to bring his plan to fruition. So the brothers thought they were getting rid of a troublemaker when they were really fulfilling God's plan. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Isn't that gorgeously t- The bow is on the present. Should be in awe of Scripture and how God has woven it together. That what they meant for ill, God uses for good. And that's what it looked like the day when Jesus died, didn't it? The Pharisees and the rulers thought they were getting rid of a troublemaker. They nailed Jesus to the cross and killed him. To make sure he was dead, they thrust a spear up into his side. They took him down and buried him in a cave, a pit. Rolled the stone in front of it. They thought they'd done it. Just like Joseph's brothers, got rid of him. But what looked like utter defeat, actually God used for his glory. Right? That's the beauty. That's what Peter was telling the the people on the day of Pentecost, right? Listen to Peter's words. He said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and plan with the help of wicked men, to put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep a hold of him. God's plan was for his favored son, whom he gave authority to go and seek this and and save the lost human race, knowing full well that they would hate and reject him, that he would pay the price for our sin, that they would kill him. And like Joseph rising second in command in Egypt, Jesus would rise from the grave and take his place at the right hand of God. I think Graham Goldsworthy's right. The meaning of the scriptures is unlocked in the life, death, and resurrection 
of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Spirit, we rely on you to apply to our hearts and to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.